DiscerningHearts.com presents a special In Conversation with Father Vincent Toomey, who's the former doctoral student and longtime friend of Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. Father Toomey is a professor emeritus of theology at St. Patrick's Pontifical University, Manus, Ireland. We now begin our conversation with Father Toomey. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Father Toomey, thank you so much once again for joining me. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you um, on this very historic day. It is a historic day. It's a day that Joseph Ratzinger was waiting for, wasn't it? He was anticipating this time, wasn't he? Well, you know what they talk about the death of the day, a a saint deaths, the um, anniversary of his death. It's a dies natalis. A birth, mm. a birthday into heaven. Mm. So I think that's the case with um, my good friend Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. Yeah, I've been rather, uh, you know, rather upset since I heard the news he was dying. I knew he was he would be dying. That he, when I saw him, I told you the last time when I saw mm-hmm. him the last time in in Rome in his monastery and had this wonderful conversation with him, longer than I had expected or even anyone had expected. And um, then, of course, he was very weak. But still, we had a better conversation than the last year, when presumably he was a bit better. So, but I could see, you know, he wouldn't have too long to last. But I didn't expect it would come so quickly. Mm. That really was, you know, then Wednesday, I heard the news that he was dying. That's the first news that Pope Francis had announced he was very ill. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, since then, I've been in mourning, practically, you know, so can't be helped. I know he's gone to heaven. Somebody wrote to me, he'd have a royal reception in heaven, <laughs> <coughs> which I think will be true. So I've, I've all kinds of memories coming to me during the day. I was writing various, you know, various things to various people, articles and things like that. And, you know, the wonderful privilege it was for me to have known this man, you know. I said to him once, you know, it was providential that I actually came to see you. I never intended originally to, to study under Ratzinger when I went to Germany for my postgraduate degrees. Um, and uh, it was rather complicated, but eventually uh, it was a, a, a conversation um, with a former pro- professor of mine in Maynooth who advised me not to go to Tübingen, where I'd hoped to go, because um, they had a very young, pro- promising theologian at the Maynooth Summer School conference during the summer in 1989, 1969. And he had to get out of begin because of the tension on the faculty. He couldn't do his academic work. And he went to this new university in Regensburg in a bit of a backwater. begin was the great theological center for centuries, you know. begin was a new university. And even though it had a connection with Albert the Great, for a while, he was Bishop of Regensburg, and the theology faculty was actually situated in the old Dominican monastery where Albert the Great himself would have taught. That was wonderful initially. Then they moved into this awful modern university on the outskirts. But he had, he had said, now I've finished my movement. He was in Bonn, an university in Bonn, in Munster, in Tübingen, and now in Regensburg. Before that, he was in, in, in Munich, in Freising. Okay. Um, he he he, made, he moved from Re- from Tübingen to Regensburg, from this famous theology faculty, 
mm-hmm. uh, to this new faculty, effectively, which had a connection. The Regensburg itself had a connection with the great teacher of Thomas Aquinas, Albert the Great. And the theology faculty for a while was situated in the actual Dominican convent where Albert the Great taught for a while, which was really marvelous. So we were there in that tradition. But then we moved out into this awful modern building on the outskirts of Regensburg. And he had his house nearby in a little parish outside the city. And he had reinterred his parents' um, remains from where they previously were buried, Traunstein, I think, to Pentling, this parish, so that he could visit his parents' graves every Sunday when he went to Mass, or every time he went to say Mass there. His sister was there, his secretary, and Georg, his brother. So everything was ready for him to start his life work. For him, the great object of any great theologian of his stature was to write a systematic account of the whole of dogmatic theology, so-called dogmatics. And he he was there surrounded by his um, doctoral students, at least 25 every year, postdoctoral students, visiting uh, scholars from all over the world. Um, And he was ready to really get down to work on a serious theological endeavor. And then he was called to take on the responsibility as Archbishop of Freising and Munich and Freising. And that really was quite a, um, a sacrifice for him, you know. So he never really got to write that huge um, uh, work. What he did write covers 16 volumes in German. And some of those volumes, they range from 700 pages to 1400 pages or thereabouts, you know, it's quite extraordinary. But they're all mostly uh, casual, you know, uh, not casual um, works that, 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 that were occasioned, mostly articles really, occasioned by various um, controversies, etc., and talks he gave, etc. So he did leave an extraordinary uh, legacy, I would say. And in years to come, that's what he would be most remembered for. It is really very, very encouraging to see how young theologians in particular are discovering him as a source of inspiration. He never, um, as I said, created this huge systematic account of theology. What he did was he, he, he set seeds. He gave, in, you know, gave, gave indication of where to go, where to start, what direction to take your thinking. And that, I think, is the great the greatness of the man. He never stopped thinking. He never stopped reading. He never stopped writing. Even as as um, when he took over as Archbishop in, in, in Munich, and then Cardinal Prefect in Rome, and as Pope, he always he still even uh, as a retired Pope, he was always reading, writing, and communicating his thought to the world. So he remained a theologian, and he already took on the job as Cardinal Prefect. Uh, once he got the assurance from Pope John Paul II that he would be allowed to publish as a private theologian. He did that right up to the end of his life. And that, of course, is what he would be remembered for. Um, among the great, of course, things he has left to, to the church and to humanity is his trilogy on Jesus of Nazareth. And every spare moment he got as Pope, he devoted to that. Because he, as he said once to us, the real problem in the church 
there are many problems in moral theology, in dogmatic theology. The real problem really is in the scriptural interpretation of who Jesus of Nazareth is. And that if we don't get that right, we get nothing right. So his whole, his whole endeavor was to actually transform, to, to uncover the scriptures, which were so dear to his heart, that actually the person of Jesus Christ in his full humanity and his full hum divinity would be evident to generations to come. And that I think he has achieved. But that's only one of the many other contributions he has made to theology. So all of these ideas are going through my head as I think back over 52 years of association with the man, first as, a, as my doctor father. In Germany, a, a doctoral supervisor is called a doctor father. Yeah? And he was a father to us yeah? in so many ways, but a wonderful father. He never interfered. He let us go our way. He, let, he gave us the freedom to research, to think. Am I saying too much? No, not at all. This is actually gold. So just, I, I just appreciate everything you're saying. Well, that, just to go, to go back to, I mean, to say my first memories of him as a professor, uh, two mm -hmm. big memories, many, but two major. One was in his lectures. He had an extraordinary um, way of delivering lectures. First of all, his lectures at the beginning of each semester, when he took up a new topic, creation, mm -hmm. evolution, for example, or the church, church's structure, or Mariology, whatever it was. He would give a tour de horizon, a, a whole, you know, um, discussion of how this, these questions were being treated in the world today. Take, for example, um, science, uh, uh, creation, the whole mm -hmm. question of evolution, what science was saying, what philosophers were saying, what theologians were saying. And these initial lectures attracted um, people, scholars, both um, professors and students from every discipline on the university because they were so marvelous. His grasp of literature, of history, of, of philosophy and of theology and science was quite incredible and all delivered with an ease, just flowed out of him. And the trouble is when you're trying to take notes, uh, you know, it, one idea flowed into the other. It's so hard to actually summarize it because you, you say, well, that idea, it just simply led to another. So that, that was the one thing. His, his lectures were quite stunning. The other thing was the way he conducted his seminars and colloquium, doctoral colloquium. I think I may have mentioned that at the last time, did I, that he had, he had this kind of capacity to allow every student, everyone who participated in a seminar, to express themselves, to actually look for the truth in their own way. And um, he would, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but uh, I remember, you know, he, he would kind of start off, a student would read a paper, then he'd open that for discussion. And um, after about 20 minutes or half an hour, he would say, he would summarize the discussion in a few minutes, all the main points. And say, ah, oh, Herr Schmidt, so-and-so, Herr Joe Smith, he made a point that nobody picked up. And it's a very important point. It's, a, it's a, an objection that nobody really looked at. And then he would say what Herr Schmidt tried to say. Herr Schmidt would glow. That's what I was trying to say. In other words, he grasped, he could grasp what you were trying to say, even a, a neophyte, even somebody who's a beginner, 
he could actually grasp um, what uh, he was trying to say. And then he'd say, now the implications of this point are A, B, and C. Let's discuss that. And then the discussion would take off. And then when the hour and a half was over, irrespective of what, what stage the discussion had come to, said, sorry, thank you very much. Now we'll meet again next week. Yeah? He would never try to summarize. He'd never try to correct anyone. That's the discussion. And so when the seminar was over or the or colloquium, you went on then to discuss it. With, with The discussion went on beyond the actual um, auditorium or the seminar room or the doctoral colloquium. So they're all, they're part of the memories that are kind of flow, flowing through my mind at the moment. Yeah? And then, of course, his, when he was called to be Archbishop of, uh, of um, Munich and, and, and Freising, um, I remember how disappointed we all were, his students, you know. And I had occasion to go to his, um, his, his house in Pentling um, to do something for him, bring him somewhere, I think. And he, I said, Professor Rasker, why did you take on that job, you know? You look like you're, you're a loss to, to academia. And he pointed to a letter on the table on his desk and he said, well, if the Pope writes you a personal letter, you can't refuse. And then, of course, he was getting into his job in, in, in Munich after a very difficult start. He replaced a, a, a Archbishop, Cardinal Archbishop, Cardinal Dupfner, who had completely different ideas to what he had. And so he had quite a struggle to establish himself initially. In, but then he was getting into it. I think Pope Paul VI asked him then, or, uh, one of the popes asked him to, you know, yeah, Paul VI, I think, asked him to take on a job in Rome. He said, no, no, I can't, in education. And then eventually John Paul II persuaded him to take it on. And uh, with great reluctance, he had to do it, you know. And then he went to Rome. So he gave up that, the wonderful job he was doing as archbishop, trying to sort out a diocese of over almost two million, I think, you yeah? um, know, with the huge, uh, huge problems, of course, as well. And then he went to Rome and then he was doing a job that really was not in his nature to do. As I said, his discussions were always free and open, and he respected everybody's views, and he taught us to respect any views, no matter where they came from. Uh, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, atheist, doesn't matter, Buddhist or, or, or Hindu, or all, any scintilla of truth has to be respected and uh, as something that is also comes from God. But um, as prefect, cardinal prefect of the doctor of the faith, he had to discipline various colleagues. This really went against his, his the grain, I think. He had to also point out, you know, the, the errors in certain theologians' views, because these errors are would affect people's salvation, nothing less. So as a theologian, you can debate things in the in the lecture halls, part of the laboratory of the, of the faith, if you wish. But in the public realm, when these things come into the public realm, they take on a different significance. And if they upset people's faith, and many of the, of the theologies did and do, then they have to be corrected. And so he had to actually, you know, correct various things, various, also various developments in, the, in, in society, in the moral area in particular. And of course, he did it, it probably came across as, as rather severe, 
but I think he had to be severe because he was going against the grain to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, he was attacked greatly. He was known as, you know, uh, God's Rottweiler and the Panzer Cardinal and etc. etc. He knew all of that. He was always being attacked, especially in the German media, but the media throughout the world. Um, and he just simply had to take it as, you know, remember what the Lord said, you know, blessed are you when they persecute you for my sake. You know, that's what you expect, you know. I would also, somebody else, I was told to somebody recently about, you know, what my general impression of him over the years. One thing struck me, a number of things struck, struck me, one in particular was as a young professor, and he was quite a young professor, you see, um, he was always running here, there, and everywhere. He had lectures, he was going to seminars, he was writing books and writing articles, rather, um, and uh, giving these wonderful lectures. He was, he was dean of the faculty in the university. He was, uh, he, he was on various commissions, etc., etc. You know, So he was always kind of hurrying. But once he became Archbishop of Munich, a calm set in. Now, he was, even when he was hurried, he never lost his calm. He never lost his cool. Only once, I think, did he do so when he was falsely attacked by what became one of his favorite students afterwards in a seminar. But anyhow, that's the only time I can remember him losing his, his calm. But he was, his calm increased as he became archbishop, cardinal, cardinal prefect, and as pope. Yeah. Even though his workload increased, his responsibilities increased, so evidently he was carried by another source, which is not human. And uh, because as a human being, as a man, he was always very frail. His, his health is frail, was frail. And uh, he had, I think, two strokes. Towards the end of his life, he lost the sight in one eye. I think he might, might have been slightly deaf in one ear. And yet he continued and never complained. Yeah? And still he always had a smile on his face when he was relaxed. You know? He had a lovely sense of humor, sometimes quite mischievous. And um, he loved to be with, with people, with his friends. And he used to enjoy his former students when we met every year for a colloquium uh, for, a few, for a weekend or so, just in the evening to be, to be chatting and talking, have a glass of beer, a glass of wine, and regaling various stories. Yeah? So there are some of the fond memories I have of him. This is the kind of side of, of the man that, in general, the world wouldn't have the opportunity to see or to experience. Yeah. And then as yeah. a, on a personal level, he was always ready to, for any of us to help if we needed help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when we met, as, uh, before he became Pope, uh, when we met as a Schulerkreis uh, in the summer, usually in Germany, and sometimes a few times, twice in Rome, once in, in Switzerland, he always had time for anyone who had a request to make of him privately. He always did what he promised, yeah? you know, so, and he never forgot anything. He had a stupendous memory, of course. Um, his sister Maria told me once, was in the, one of our first meeting in Rome, actually, that uh, Joseph never reads a book twice. And he never forgot a face, never forgot a name. No? And this is, you know, quite remarkable. So it was a, a great privilege to have known him at all. But um, as I said to him, actually in a letter, I think it was a 
providential that I, you know, for me anyhow. And he said, yes, I think it was providential. It is, everything is under God's providence, of course. That's kind of, doesn't have to be said, I suppose, you know. So, well, so that's... Father, yeah, the yeah. thing is, Father, what is so remarkable. Thank you first for sharing some of the, just the meant, just, just a few of the moments and the observations, I'm sure, that you'll be unpacking for so long. And, you know, the thing about him, as you were describing him, what he ended up becoming for so much of um, of the world in a very real way was a real pastor, yes. even though he was a, a, a incredible theologian and was able to see things in ways and make connections and contextualize things in ways that left you kind of breathless at moments, those aha moments, those uh, those times when he, I, I keep going back to the Wednesday audiences mm. where John Paul, he did uh, incredible things while he had his opportunity to do that. And I say this in all reverence and respect to the to the great saint. I, I do think that uh, Pope Benedict XVI did a better job at it because he he just so knew how to focus in to teach the world. His audience, his students became the the the, the little person in uh, whether it was in South Africa or somewhere in a cottage in England or wherever he knew they would hear this moment, and he would take he would describe Bonaventure in one or two sessions and and open up a door that would encourage everyone, not just someone who is studying, but everyone to get to know that working of the Lord in that person. Does that does that make sense? That is beautifully said. That sums up the whole thing. And it's interesting, the people who are, who are sending their condolences to me are a number of so-called ordinary people, you know. Mm-hmm. Or so-called simple faithful, but as he once pointed out, pointed out in the New Testament, the term for holiness is simplicity. Mm. And he had that simplicity himself. And you mentioned the audiences. The people say people went to see John Paul II. He was a rock star to a certain extent. You know, he was mm-hmm. a major figure and loved, greatly loved by by Ratzinger when when they were working together. They worked very well together. Two completely different personalities. Mm-hmm. I remember one of these these audiences that I read about, actually, um, the text where he was, uh, he had an audience of first communicants, children who had made their first communion sometime mm-hmm. previously that year, you know. So mm-hmm. he had a few of them around him up on the dais, up, up on the center of Peter Square, and they were asking him questions. <laughs> and one of, them, uh, one of the questions was, Holy Father, um, I've been to confession now a few times, and uh, I'm always saying the same things. Why, why should I bother going to confession? Yeah. He said, well, do you have a room in your house? Yes. And do you clean the room? Yes. Well, what would happen if you didn't clean it regularly? The same with your soul. You must clean your soul of the dust that gathers in the weeks. Yeah? Mm-hmm. That beautiful? It is. And the other then was, um, Holy Father, I want to go to Mass on Sunday, but my parents sleep out. What should I do about it? He said, well, now your parents are working hard to put you through, to, to feed you, to clothe you, to put you through uh, school, etc. And they're tired on a Sunday morning, you know. So, you know, be sympathetic towards them. 
but give them a gentle nudge. <laughs> gentle. You know, a gentle nudge, you know. So you're quite right. Um, what he had to say, especially in his audiences, his homilies, his homilies are extraordinary, you know. Mm. Um, he had also quite a poetic um, pen. Uh, you know, his prose was almost poetic at times. And he had this extraordinary gift of being able to capture in a few words really very deep and profound thoughts. And so that so-called so ordinary Catholics, simple faithful, they knew what he was talking about and they were enriched by it. And likewise for the general public, his great three encyclicals, you know, first one on love. When he produced the one on love, Deus Caritas, this really mm -hmm. surprised the world because he had this terrible negative image as yep. the you know enforcer of, of the faith, to quote one book's subtitle, or the God's, God's Rottweiler or the Panzer Cardinal. Uh, suddenly he's talking about love. And he did so in such a wonderful way. It's a summary of much of his theology in actual fact. Yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, and then the second one was on hope, how much we need hope today. And his analysis of hope, that I think is most beautifully written of all his two or three encyclicals, four actually. Yeah? And the third one then, <clears throat> which was published after he had abdicated by under the name of, of Pope Francis, was on faith. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So the three... Um, three theological virtues. Um, he always managed to get to the core of the matter, you know, to, to, to not be distracted by what's peripheral, or really to get to the core of, of, of things, you yeah? And so too, when he gave his speeches, he knew his audience always, as they say. And when he was actually, his major speeches to politicians, he addressed the United Nations in New York on the occasion of the was it the fiftieth anniversary, sixtieth anniversary of sixtieth uh, anniversary of the United, the Human Rights Charter of Human Rights. Yeah. Give a marvelous talk there, and then he gave a wonderful talk in in Paris to the politicians and leaders of culture on the source of European civilization being in the monastic monasteries of Benedict. Yeah. And then in Westminster Hall, he gave this extraordinary talk in a few, a few um, yards away from St. Thomas More was condemned to death for his conscience. And Ressinger was a man who wrote wonderfully on what conscience is, inspired by Cardinal Newman. But that speech was, uh, I remember Lord, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Patton, who organized his state visit to, to England. I happened to meet him at a dinner in, in Dublin on, on one occasion. I was introduced to him as, as Benedict's uh, former student. Immediately he said that that was one of the two most impressive, two best talks by any politician he's ever heard. The other was by Obama, by the way. He said Obama gave an extraordinary talk, uh, Lord Patton, Chris Patton, um, when he was during his uh, campaign to be president. Anyhow, he really stunned the uh, members of parliament, House of Commons, House of Lords. There were all the prime ministers were there. And then, of course, he went to, Ber to Berlin. And in the parliament there, he made, had this extraordinary address to the um, parliamentarians uh, on the nature of justice, the role of, of conscience in society. And the need to to recover 
as he said, you know, the what we call the natural law, the, 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 the instinct for goodness and truth that is deep in our hearts. So we live in a bunker at the moment and we exclude the light, the, the light of God's, God's illumination. And we live in artificial light that break open the bunker. He was telling the politicians, and look, God is the only one that actually can give you the right direction into the future. God and the moral law he has written into our beings. Yeah? So, so he, he spoke you know, to different people at different levels and he could do it. And he also, of course, chose, as you rightly said, to speak during his Wednesday audiences mostly on the great saints of the church, right from the apostles, right through the whole 2000 years, because that's one of his main um, convictions, that the two greatest apologies, ultimately the two most convincing apologies for the church, for the faith, for Christianity, are her saints and her art. So... And also, of course, they're not just apologies for the church. They are what inspires us to be Christian. Yeah. Ultimately, theology has its place, but nothing compares to the example of a great saint. Yeah. And all the saints are there, not only to intercede for us, that above all, but also to inspire us and to give us the courage to go on and to face the world with joy and peace and to bring joy and peace into the world. So, <clears throat> as you said, he had this capacity to, you know, speak to the, anyone who's, whose mind was open, I would say. Yeah? Be they scholars, intellectuals, be they ordinary housewives or, or, or workers, he could speak to, be their children. Yeah? But above all, as I said, he, he, his, his writings, which are, you know, so so rich, uh, they will be a source of inspiration for theologians for generations to come. Yeah, there are many people have been asking me recently, well, where would I start? And yeah. depending on who they are, and, and generally, well, I think for anybody, uh, Ignatius Press, I know, has been able to put along with other other publishers have done this, but Ignatius has done a nice job of putting those audiences yes. uh, so that that's a great doorway, you know, and there was a series of audiences right towards the end in which they pretty much were called the school of prayer, yes. where he entered into this uh, great, uh, how can I say it? His relationship with the word was a relationship with the person of Christ. Exactly. And, he, and that's how he did his biblical scholarship. It, 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 he didn't dissect it, you no. know, and leave it like a cadaver. On, uh, and, I, and I say that again in all reverence, I'm not trying to, but there are people who will do scripture that way. Mm. But he didn't do that. He was so gentle because he was dealing with a living word, capital W, wasn't he? Well, of course, that was really the subject of his his postdoctoral thesis on Bonaventure, where he discovered <clears throat> that for Bonaventure, Revelation, up to then, <clears throat> there was a tendency to see revelation in terms of statements of the truth, um, founded on scripture and tradition. You know? The church's teaching and scripture are the unspoken tradition, unspoken word. And um, he discovered, of course, in the medieval theologians, especially um, Bonaventure, but also Thomas Aquinas, that actually 
revelation is person, you know. So Jesus Christ and the sacrament, the scripture and tradition—they are our gateway. You know, they, they they mediate that encounter with the person, but they are not ends in themselves, and therefore they have to be treated precisely as that. So his great uh, trilogy on Jesus of Nazareth, you know, it d d describes that. You know, modern. Ex interpretation of, of, of scripture is very much based on the modern historical critical method. And he uses that because it has all also brought a lot of insights into our reading of, of scripture. But it's not enough. And then he said, we have to see it within the whole interpretation of how, how the church, above all our great thinkers, Irenaeus of Lyon, Athanasius, Augustine, Bonaventure, Thomas, how they have interpreted the scriptures down through the centuries. Yeah? And then, of course, the questions that are raised by the modern world. But, but as you so beautifully put it, uh, Chris, you know, the scriptures and the word of God is not a, a dead thing. It is living yeah? and is liberating when you see it in that way. And um, it also means that the study of scripture then you know, really will never end because we can never plumb the depth of the word of God as expressed in scripture or tradition. Yeah? So I think that um, when he went as a very young Peritus expert with Cardinal Frings to Second Vatican Council, um, <clears throat> you know that when he's, he almost failed his postdoctoral thesis, I did not know that. Yes, because yes, because he was he was contradicting the consensus at the time, mm. and one of his examiners was an ex exponent of that consensus. You know, mm. so when he when he um, submitted, I think he wrote the doctoral the postdoc in a very short time, perhaps one or two years. Yeah, mm -hmm. doctoral thesis was written in six months. But um, and this is a big, thick uh, volume now. It's been published by uh, in his collection of works. And um, he gave it to him. To, he submitted it to the faculty. He waited, waited, waited. And then he was at a meeting one time of theologians. And he ran into his, his um, the second examiner, sa said, by the way, uh, you failed. Yeah. <laughs> Now, he had expected to, to, to pass, evidently, you know. Mm -hmm. If you do a superb doctoral thesis and you've got the support of your, 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 your supervisor, as he had, his mm -hmm. own supervisor, um, then, of course, you, you're, you're sure of it. And, therefore, and, and he was so sure that he got his parents to sell their own house, to live, in, live with him in the seminary outside Munich, Freising, and he was ready to start on his career. And all of a sudden, he would lose all of that. So he was devastated, but then he, he, he got the text back. There was every second word, line was read, 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 question mark, question mark, question mark. Yeah. So and he was given it, his supervisor managed to persuade the faculty to allow him to resubmit. So he took it home. I said, what am I going to do now? And the man who who rejected him, said to himself, I suppose, there are so many corrections to be made, he will not be able to do it. Yeah. But Ratzinger noticed that 
two-thirds of the dissertation were actually read, marked with red by all over the place. But the last third, which was on its own history of, 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 uh, of revelation, um, that actually was untouched. So he, he siphoned off. And by the way, the, 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 the typist who typed his doctoral thesis made so many typos, so many errors, it was embarrassing. So he's never he's never actually taken anyone to task for typos in his life. But um, that also didn't help. So he siphoned off the first two thirds and resubmitted the last third, which had to be accepted. And then at the he had to give a public lecture on the basis of his thesis as part of the of the uh, postdoc um, process, and um, he gave his his wonderful talk. And then his own supervisor, who read, who was one of the examiners, and the examiner both got up and attacked each other. <laughs> but anyhow, wow. what was at stake was he was rejecting the idea that, that that revelation can be, as it were, confined to statements, dogmatic teaching statements. You know, there's a person. And when he went to the council with Cardinal Frings, they. I think his, his most important contribution was probably to the Dei Verbum on mm -hmm. Revelation, the the, decree, the Constitution on Revelation, was decree, is it? Um, where they and that was highly fraught and fought about by the you know the old school put it that way and Ratzker and, and and company, you know, to establish that it is actually a person Revelation. And more than that, it's a person engaged in, con in, in dialogue with humanity. And uh, that is that you find in all his writings, but particularly in introduction to Christianity, where he shows that uh, God's revelation is not just revelation, it, it, it engages the human person to whom he has revealed himself, you know, Moses, the prophets, and they have to wrestle with him to understand God, you know, in his revelation. And therefore, the, the formulation of, of, of the, uh, the truths of revelation in, in, in scripture just took time, you know. And, and it's this wonderful cooperation between God and man, this dialogue between God and humanity, which actually marks revelation as well. It's not just, uh, you know, a, a saying coming down from on high, this is what I'm revealing to you, you know, because he's revealing, as the prophet Hosea and the other prophets put it, a love of God for humanity, for fallen humanity, yeah? And love, of course, ultimately can't be expressed in words, yeah? It can be indicated, but not expressed. Mm. Well, Father, this has been just such a blessed time to be with you and to get to, to know even more deeply uh, this incredible gift that the world was given in yes. allowing Joseph Ratzinger to, to be in our midst and to allow him to, to teach us and to touch our lives and to touch yours. And now you as his, as, uh, his good spiritual son, uh, helping the rest of the world to know it too. I hope we get to talk more and more about, you know, other aspects of Please his come. teachings. You know it so well. I don't really, because that's, that's interesting. Um, the youngest, I would go to the younger students mm -hmm. because when we were as, as doctoral students and postdoctoral students, we did our own thing. We did our own research. 
Mm-hmm. And he, he, he prompted us and helped us, but we were free, you know. So when he became Pope in particular, a lot of my colleagues were very embarrassed because they knew so little about him. <laughs> we didn't read him, you know. We, did, we studied his lectures, of course, and mm-hmm. seminars. It's not the same thing as having a really deep understanding. Uh, you probably have more, more, know more about him than I do, actually, from what, what you were saying, you know? <laughs> and I'm not flattering I don't you. know about that. I was taught <laughs> yes. by... Uh, well, no, no, but, but you've read so much, you know, which is really wonderful. And I, I might I'd like to pay tribute to Ignatius Press. Mm-hmm. Yes, please so, do. All, we, so, all, we owe so much to Father Fessio and his wonderful staff. Mm-hmm. They're so deep. And they have made available to the English-speaking world, not just to in America, but throughout the world, the English-speaking world is indebted to Father Joe Fessio and Ignatius Press, especially for making uh, Benedict's um, theology so accessible. Well, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Father, we, um, uh, our hearts are united with yours. Thank we're you. We're sad, but we're also uh, filled with hope and joy uh, because uh, I I have to believe I believe he he's now embraced truth fully, absolutely, and um, in, in the person of Christ, Father Toomey. Thank you so very much. Okay, God bless you and Happy New Year, you. You too. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a special In Conversation with Father Vincent Toomey discussing the life and legacy of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or on your favorite podcast streaming platform. You can also watch the video of our conversation on the Discerning Hearts YouTube channel. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com.